Loving Father in heaven, may your spirit abide, first of all, in our hearts and minds. And may your spirit fill this place. And may you keep our minds and hearts open to your truth as it is in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a special treat today before I start speaking by inviting Chris and Shaban Peterson to come here because I want to share with you a short interview with them. So I know you're sitting here, and Chris, would you please help your wife, I should say your bride, to get up on the stage with these crutches. What happened to you folks? Right after you got married, uh, you need to have crutches? What happened, Chris? What happened? How long have you been married? They've been married for three weeks only. I would call them newlyweds. And so, were these crutches needed before the wedding or after? The crutches. After the wedding. <laughs> so, uh, marriage can be tough, right? <laughs> so, could you please tell us what happened with these crutches? Um, my knee gave way on Saturday night and it, I was trying to stand up but my knee didn't want to come with me, it wanted to stay behind so it decided to stay and it twisted and it swelled up and the doctor thinks it might be torn inside but we'll see. Okay, well let me ask you something. Yesterday I talked to you, never met you before, I was very impressed with your testimony as I took time to visit with you both. First of all, you have like a British accent. Yes. Why? Um, I'm from Wales. Wales? Yeah. That's United Kingdom, right? Yes. So like you're Welsh. I'm Welsh. How many here have a Welsh background? Raise your hand, please. You see, I want you to experience camaraderie with your people here. <laughs> now, it's interesting that you join our seminar on Islam. And you recited to me yesterday some verses from the Quran. Mm -hmm. You know passages from the Quran in Arabic from memory. How could a young lady who speaks English with a Welsh accent know Arabic in the Quran? And by the way, could you give them a sample, just say something from the uh, Quran in Arabic? Anything you want to say. I'll just start. Um, I can say what we say when we open could you move forward the Quran. When we open the Quran and we say any of the passages out of the Qur'an, and uh, you always start by warning God's blessing, and we always say, That's good. Because <laughs> I know Arabic, and she pronounced it correctly. Everything is grammatically correct. Now, do you know the literal meaning of what you just said? No. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that Muslims in different parts of the world memorize Qur'anic verses without necessarily knowing the meaning. They just feel there's a blessing in the recycling. Would you mind if I translate for you what you just no, said? No, go ahead. This is what I did in Africa. You have many African Muslims who would be outside on the street praying in Arabic, the language of the Quran, and I stopped them. I mean, you, you could stop them and say hi, they greet you, visit you, go back to praying. I said, do you understand what you're praying? It's just like Philip the Evangelist. I'm Philip the Evangelist. Ask the Ethiopian, do you understand what you're reading? No, I need somebody to explain that to me. So I would say, I would translate what they're saying in, in, uh, in their language. And then I, I end up with quite a few Bible studies, just talking to people about that. So now as I translate what you said, I hope we can start a Bible study. Okay. Except you already had Bible studies. Yes. And you already got baptized. Yes. When? Three weeks ago. Is, would somebody say amen, please? Three weeks ago, she was converted to the Lordship and salvation of Jesus Christ from Islam. She grew up a Muslim. Her background is Pakistani. And you don't know the bravery God gave her to make the decision because Muslim parents do not let their kids become Christians at all. And she is here by the grace of God. So two big events in your life. Yes. Marriage 
and becoming a Christian. All on one weekend. In one weekend? <laughs> yeah. Were you able to take it all in? Yes, I think you're ready. By the grace of God, you're okay. Yes. And Chris, you, you seem to be very supportive of this young lady. And uh, <laughs> is she a good cook? Oh, yeah. What does she cook? She cooks just about anything, but just mostly Pakistani style foods. And you like Pakistan? You like Pakistan? I do not. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, like you like, she can cook anything you want. Anything. So can we, uh, can you invite us all for a meal? <laughs> <For food? laughs> I mean, there are about a sure. hundred people here. If I have a big enough kitchen. You would do it. Oh, yeah. I like to feed people. Tell me, how did you begin learning about Christ? Well, it started when I met Chris. Chris and I met online two years ago. We were friends. And I was very shy to tell him that I was Muslim. I didn't want to tell him that I was Muslim, that I grew up as a Muslim, because I thought, you know, Muslim people are not portrayed very well in the media nowadays. And when I told him, he got really excited and he started telling me all the similarities between Adventist people and Muslim people. And just going with that, going with what he was saying, and I started looking some things up too, because I didn't know there would be similarities between any Christian religion with um, Islam at all. Um, like, we eat clean foods as well. Uh, no drinking, no smoking, nothing that can harm your body. Uh, live a healthy lifestyle. Um, praying, all the different things. And now, Chris, could you come forward? No, I, I don't yeah. want to bother you. Could, you could come forward. Do you? Can you hear them? No. So <laughs> what you need to do, we need to be heard. Come as close to the microphone as possible. I know you have questions. Okay. And Chris, just come close to your wife here and tell me, did you give her Bible studies? Uh, yeah, she started actually seeking help because she started reading the Quran and she was having difficulty understanding it. So she knew I come from a uh, biblical background. So she asked me for guidance and understanding some of the passages because the Quran does reference the Bible a lot. And she didn't have a Bible to study. <laughs> My parents wouldn't allow me to have a Bible to study when I questioned them. The Quran says I need a Bible and a Torah, well, a, the Gospel and the Torah to kind of understand all these stories. They said, oh no, you don't say that in this house. <laughs> so, so let me talk to you about your family. Your family is still in, in Wales. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you came with a stark choice. Either you're loyal to Christ, follow Christ, or you go along with your family and you made a very brave decision. Mm -hmm. Very brave. Yes. It's like the disciples said, we'd rather obey God more than man. And, and, and you got baptized and all of that. And you believe in our distinctive message. You believe Jesus is your Savior, the Lord, and the Son of God. Amen. That's yes. a wonderful testimony. How does this affect your relationship with your family? My family want nothing to do with me. They haven't spoken to me since the day I decided to leave home. So I haven't seen or spoken to my family since last summer. And even now they want, they want no contact and they just want to They vowed home. not to have any contact with her. Yeah. For always. Totally lost her family. In fact, your aunt talked to you, right? Mm -hmm. And what did they, how do they view your aunt now? Because my auntie was helping me, they told my auntie that they wanted nothing to do with her either. So any family member that tries to help me, my parents cut off all ties with. Um, so that's really hard. But we need to keep praying for your parents, that God will touch their hearts, okay? Yes. Nothing is impossible with God. But, Shabana, I want to assure you with all the folks here, that God has given you a brand new family. Yes. His mom and dad, Mm -hmm. The loved ones love you, you're yes. their daughter. And all these people want to be your brothers and sisters and parents in Christ. Amen. If you believe that, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate your testimony. Thank you so much. I thought how fitting it was. We're talking about the subject, how to reach out to Muslims. And here we have a living example. So I had to share with you their testimony. 
God always has a family for us. And the church is God's family. It's a place people come to seek refuge and to seek fellowship and nurture and encouragement. Please, in your churches in this conference, wherever you are, there are people who might have displeased their parents or made this decision to join our church and might lose their friends over it. Please be intentional about becoming friends with them, becoming family with them. There are always some people in the church who need a family, who need encouragement, and they look forward every Sabbath to be with us in church, because that's their family. Thank you again for that testimony. I want to follow up what we talked about yesterday, and the question is, how can we reach Muslim people effectively? How can we reach Jewish people effectively? The children of Abraham. There's an example how she accepted the truth from the Bible as it's found in Christ. And I would like you to go to page 260 in your textbook. So this way you can underline it, you can relate to it. I'm so sorry, we ran out of books. ABC ran out of books. But if you have one with you, you can share it with your neighbor for now. Look what it says here. Question 5. What is the Adventist added to a reaching out to those who have been neglected? And what is the best approach to reach them with the gospel? Ellen White, that's the answer one of the co-founders of the Adventist Church wrote. In the closing proclamation of the gospel, which we are experiencing now, one special work is to be done for classes of people hitherto neglected. We don't talk much about Ishmael, we talk about Israel. That's why the title of the textbook is Abraham's other son, neglected so far. And then I appeal to the best method in the world. We are so enamored with so many methods to reach people. But Christ's method is the best. Because the spirit of prophecy says, it gives genuine success, true success. If it's combined with prayer, it can never fail. And I want to, to review that. Coming from Minister of Healing, page 143. Of course, Ellen White got these ideas from the gospel. She just summarized them, organized them this way. The first thing Jesus did, and this transcends culture, religious barriers, nationality, race, geographical location, because it finds a path to the human heart. Jesus, the first thing he did, he mingled with people as one who desired their good. What was the motive? Altruistic motive. As one who desired their good, not for ulterior motives, selfish motives. And you know something? We can have selfish motives in witnessing. Your first priority would be to baptize that person. And if you decide not to get baptized, then you drop them a hot potato. That's not genuine, pure motive of love. We should relate to people. If you get baptized or not, we're still your friends. Some of the best converts and fruitful disciples in the church I pastored were the ones, even though they decide not to get baptized, but kept coming to church. In God's right time, they decide to get baptized. They made the strongest members. But yet the secret was, we remain being friends with them, no matter what they decided. Because we want to reach out to people for the motive of love, or altruistic motive. Secondly, he ministered to their needs, felt and real. The need of Zacchaeus was for friendship. That's his felt need. But the real need in his life was for salvation, and Jesus became his friend. He socialized with him. He mingled with nobody else went to mingle with him. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I want everybody to see me standing by you. I'm not ashamed of you. Let me tell you, when people are ashamed of you, Christ is not ashamed of you. What else did he say to him? He said, I must go to your house today. In that culture, the biblical culture of Jesus, my culture, you never invite yourself 
to somebody's house unless you're a close family member. To walk to somebody and say, I want to be at your house, I want to sleep in your house for tonight, I want to have a meal at your house. You only do this to close family members. What Jesus was saying, Zacchaeus, I not only want to be your friend, I want to be your family member. And no wonder Zacchaeus was reformed because Jesus was in his house. At the end, Jesus says, salvation has come to his house. So you look at all these steps here. And I summarize all of them by four verbs. I call them the four S's using Christ's approach to reach Muslims, anybody in the world. The first thing, socialize. The second thing, sympathize. The third thing, serve. And the fourth thing, save. You notice how it focuses on people first, before it focuses on the task. Can somebody, for ten bonus points, repeat these four S's in order for me? Right now. Who was it? Oh, Shabana. Wonderful. Would you please, what's the first one? Socialize. If you need sympathize and then serve, say. That's a, that's a simple but perfect formula. It's Jesus' approach. And so that's what I have here. And then in this Christ method on page 260, look what it says. At the end, the last step is that Jesus bade people to follow him as Savior and Lord. And then six, then he trained them to be fishers of men. This method is a complete method. Many methods are not complete. It starts with socializing with people. It doesn't stop until it trains them to be fruitful disciples. There is no effective way to witness unless you show people how to become fruitful disciples. It's also a way of life. You can practice in the home, in, in the church. Imagine if church members are praying for each other, uplifting each other in Christ, treating each other like Jesus treats people, encouraging them, validating them, affirming them, sympathizing with them, praying for them. You will get rid of gossip. You'll get rid of misconceptions, and people bring each other down. Christ's method causes a revival in the church. Now, if you, uh, if you look at page 261, at the end of the first paragraph, I want us to make this clear, underline it there, 2631, the last three lines on the first paragraph on top of the page. Look what it says. This method of Christ, accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of love of God, will not and cannot be without fruit. You notice how this method of Christ is introduced with success. It's concluded without failure. If you combine it with being a winsome witness, applying Christ's love and praying, it has to have fruit. And now you notice these two words, prayer and witness. Christ combined prayer with witness. There is an inseparable linkage between the two. Look at Matthew 9. He said he, he surveyed the multitude. And then he said the harvest is ripe. But the labors are few. You know, sometimes we think the opposite of Jesus. Do you know that? We say the harvest is a problem. And Jesus said, no, the harvest is ripe. What's the problem? I don't have enough of you. But Lord, how do you know for sure the harvest is ripe? Because I work at this office and people seem to be not spiritual. Oh, because we're looking at the outward appearance. We're not looking at the heart. When Jesus looks at people... He looks with his heart into their heart. And he discovers that they're ripe. They're looking for something this world cannot give them. 
Can you believe this? Churches spend millions of dollars to do what's called demographic studies. What's a demographic study? A demographic, do you know what it is? Yes. You have questionnaires, you have surveys, to discover in your town if people are interested in salvation. All I want to say in a very confident way, please save your money. Do not spend a penny doing that. Why? Because the great researcher, Jesus, did not give any questionnaires or surveys. He looked directly at people's hearts. And he said, they are longing for salvation. How come they don't show it openly? Because people don't feel comfortable telling you about the inner self. What helps them to do that? By applying Christ's method, making friends with them, making them feel safe with you, winning their trust, they open themselves to you. And you are surprised. I had no idea you were really longing for salvation. Because you see, God, in creating us, put in each one of us and everybody in the world, be they Muslim, Hindus, agnostics, Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, he puts in them this craving to connect with their Creator. They feel restless until they find something to give them this peace and assurance of salvation. Like Alan White said, he said, people all around us are wistfully looking for something this world cannot give them. That applies to everybody. Our task is to diffuse the fragrance of Christ to draw people to Christ. Our task is to provide such a winsome, loving environment in which people can feel safe to tell us who they are and also to feel safe to finally tell us how much they need God in their lives. To show you how true this is, a rich man who died some time ago, a millionaire many times over, he got everything this world could ever give to anybody. Loving wife, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Millionaires. A palace of a house. Everything this world could offer, he had in abundance. He lacked nothing. I was invited to come to the house when he was dying at home. They wanted me to come pray with him. The moment I arrived and stood next to him, he held my hand tightly. And he said, Pastor, as you can tell, I have everything this world could ever give me. I lack nothing, but please help me before I breathe my last to have peace with God. You must help me have peace with God. I have everything except peace with God. We spend the next 45, 50 minutes reading promises about how God gets rid of guilt and sin, how he assures us for salvation, and he, every time I shared a promise, every time I offered a little prayer, he would squeeze my hand, squeeze my hand. Do you believe that? Squeeze my hand, squeeze my hand, smile. Finally, at the end, there was a big smile on his face. And he breathed his last, having peace with God. Everybody needs God. We don't need to do research. Jesus already did the research and discovered that people are looking for something this world cannot give them. And what else does it say in this method, inspired method, if it's combined with prayer? Jesus saw the multitude, and then he said, Harvest is ripe, labors are few. The harvest is great. What do we need? Pray. He combined witnessing with praying. So Lord, bless me. Uh, you know, I read the book, The Prayer of Jabez. I like the book. 
that was published years ago, very popular, I thought to myself, we need more than the prayer of Jabez, we need the praying Jesus. Why can't we focus on Jesus praying for us? So I wrote a book entitled, Christ's Way to Pray, How Christ Prays for You and With You. People don't think about Jesus praying for them. Why not? They think of the pastor praying for them, their dad, mom, friends praying for them. But please don't exclude Jesus. Jesus, our mightiest prayer warrior, he prays for you every day with fervency and passion and power. Do you believe the Bible teaches that Christ prays for us? Do you believe that? Is there biblical evidence? Yes. Luke 22, 31, 32, Simon, Simon, Jesus said, the devil desired to have sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. He prayed for his enemies, the ones who were crucifying. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He also prayed for his disciples in John 17, 20. I not only pray for you, my disciples, but I pray for all those in the future who will believe in me because of your testimony. Alan White said, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. As he prayed for Peter, he prays for us today. And he tailors his prayers to fit our particular needs and challenges. My mother taught me how to pray this way. So I dedicate the book to her. And this is how the dedication goes. I mean, when I left the old country, I never had the chance, not the chance, I was never allowed to ever go back. My parents were never allowed to come and see me. My wife, my daughter never met my parents. Savannah, I can empathize with you. Never ever had the chance to see my parents, my loved ones again. But my mother taught me how to pray. This is what she did. From the time I was four years old, she would draw me close to her. She put one arm around me and the other arm toward, pointing toward heaven. And she would tell me, no matter what happens to us during the persecution, she would show me a tiny glimpse how Jesus prayed for me. That's the kind of prayer I want to apply in your witness. It's very powerful. I'm sharing with you from personal experience. This is how Jesus prays for you. I don't know where she got this idea from. He puts his arm around you. With the other arm, as the Son of God, he connects you with the Son of God. When I came to this country, I did some research about prayer and prepared to write the book. I discovered Ellen White made that same statement my mother was practicing in her prayer life. And here I read you the statement. I'm reading it to you simply because to let you know when you pray, you never pray all by yourself. Prayer was never meant to be a solo activity. It was always meant to be a joint, sacred venture with Jesus. Don't ever forget, Jesus is praying for you and with you. And so this is the dedication of the book to my beloved mother, Hannah, whose passionate prayers were my first glimpse of the embrace of the praying Jesus, who prays for us personally. I call this the four Ps. Personally, by name. He knows us by name, and he prays for us by name. He prays for us passionately, means with great fervency. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 7, when Jesus prayed, he prayed with passionate crying and tears. He prays for us powerfully. Don't ever focus on your measly prayer. Focus on Jesus' mighty prayers and unite you measly prayer with his mighty prayers. And finally, he prays for us perpetually. You know how fickle we are in our prayers? We pray for somebody a few times and we give up. Jesus never gives up praying for us. He prays per perpetually, Hebrews 7.25. He ever lives to make intercessions for us. And I just want to say something first about my mother in honor of her. She is resting in Jesus. Was never allowed to go to the funeral. She really wants me to be there. But she wasn't allowed to. I want to see my son. I want to tell him how much I prayed for him for all these years. I want to pray for him for the last time. But I wasn't there 
And she began to hallucinate. She imagined I was there. She was so glad to see me. I want to say to you, say to you goodbye. I'll see you in the morning of the resurrection. She started praying and praying and praying. Until her prayer was interrupted by breathing her last breath. My mother passed away. She ceased to pray. But our mighty prayer world, Jesus, never, never ceases to pray for us. Please combine this kind of praying with Christ's method of witnessing. Now I want to look at page 255. Question 1. What does Islam teach about proper diet and drink and proper conduct? Shabana told us about the commonalities we have with them as far as diet and drink. And I'm quoting from their sacred book, the Quran, chapter 2. O ye people, eat of what is on the earth, lawful and good, and do not follow the footsteps of the evil one, for he is to you an avowed enemy. In another place, their holy book says, He has only forbidden you dead meat. You, well, you know what that means, right? You have a carcass on the freeway, a deer hit by a car, that's dead meat. But you know, I began to think about it and I smiled. Even when an animal is slaughtered properly, in a kosher way, before you cook it and eat it, it's dead. I don't care how it's killed. Roadkill? However it's killed, it's dead meat. By the time you eat it. I hope so. I mean, I mean you know, we don't eat live animals. That's what it says. Forbidden you dead meat and blood and the flesh of swine. Seventh-day Adventists do not eat pork. Uh, a pig in the Holy Land, Muslims and Christians view it as a filthy animal. The Jews had to purify themselves if they touch a pig. I came to America 50 years ago, and people love pigs. I was amazed how Christians love pigs. Some of them have them as pets in their house. Touch them and play with them. And then I couldn't believe it, they ate them. Christians did that. I couldn't believe it. I'm thankful we 70 others follow the Bible by not eating unclean meat. And what else does it say? And that in which any other name has been invoked besides that of God. That goes along with Leviticus chapter 11. Look at the second paragraph on page 256. I'm going slowly, hopefully clearly, if you don't have the textbook. Look at the middle of the page, the beginning of the second paragraph. Furthermore, when the Quran attests that when quotation now, they ask thee concerning wine and gambling. I'm so glad Seventh-day Adventists are not into drinking and gambling. Our thing is not to go to Las Vegas. Many Christians go to Las Vegas to gamble and to drink. The Quran goes against drinking and gambling. And it says, in them is great sin. In what? In gambling there is great sin, in drinking is great sin. When some Seventh-day Adventists are trying to modify their lifestyle and say to me, there's nothing wrong with drinking socially. Well, drinking socially doesn't always remain drinking socially. Why should we have anything to do with something like liquor that caused so much mayhem in this world? Divorce, violence. I don't know why this defined the word uh, temperance. Avoiding all harmful things. Liquor is harmful. All of it, not just some of it. 
and then using judiciously that is which is good. Even what's good, use judiciously. And that applies to me, the second part, very much so. Because I come from Middle East, and we love to eat fruit and pita bread. And the reason I gain some weight, because I cannot eat unless I have a piece of bread in my hand. I chew on a morsel of food and I have a piece of bread. Eat too much bread. Fruit, I love fruit. If you ever invite me to your house, have some fruit for me. I'd rather have fruit than any dessert. Any fruit. Mangoes, grapes, cantaloupes, cherries, peaches. What's my problem? I eat too much of it. If my wife doesn't, you know, uh, restrain me, I could eat seven, eight pieces of fruit a day. Maybe 12. Too much sugar. So I need to learn to use judiciously that which is good. Whole wheat, pita bread is good, but not too much of it. Fruit is good, but not too much of it. Then, look how much we have in common with them. I mean, the media doesn't tell you this. CNN doesn't tell you this. We Seventh-day Adventist Christians must be intelligent how to reach people. Of course it is terrorism. Terrible, evil, demonic. But we shouldn't just look at the chaff. Why not focusing on the wheat? And see what can happen with these people eager to know about the Savior Jesus. Because no prophet is a Savior. Only Jesus, Son of God, is a Savior. He can give righteousness and life instead of sin and death. Look at question 2 on page 257. Question 2. Is there any similarity between what the Quran says and the Bible about the subject of death? And I want to emphasize that part because the subject of saying that will become extremely important in the last days. Because through new age and new modes of spiritualism, Satan will do his best to deceive on this very subject. And we have so much more in common with Muslims about the subject. Any other Christian? The Christians believe in when you die, if you're Catholic, you go to paradise, you go to hell, you go to purgatory. Protestants believe when you die, you go either to hell or heaven. But Seventh-day Adventists basing their beliefs on the Bible, they believe when you die, you go to the grave. The body goes to dust, and the breath of God goes back to God who gave it in the first place. When a man breathes his last, his breath doesn't take detours to haunted houses, to purgatory, paradise, hell. Oh no, it goes back directly to God who gave it. Why do I know this? Because the Bible says it. They don't have to worry about it. They are resting in the grave until resurrection. I talked to a Protestant Southern Baptist recently in Tennessee. I, I said, I'm interested to ask you a question. If your loved one, when he dies, goes directly to heaven, he's enjoying the bliss of heaven, enjoying the company of the angels for many years. But there's going to be a resurrection of the righteous dead. What do you imagine is going to happen? Is Christ going to say to him, after enjoying heaven for so many years, I'm going to cause you to die and go to the grave so that I could resurrect. Does that make any sense? There's a reason for the resurrection. That means you resurrect dead people, the dead righteous. If they're already in heaven, why do we need a resurrection? Chris, why would I say to this audience here, I need to pick you up from a shopping mall downtown if you're already here with me. Why would Jesus come down from heaven to the earth to resurrect somebody who's already with him? We need to be logical about these things. And look what the Quran says, the Islamic book about the subject. It's right there on page 257, question number two. And I'm looking at the second part of that paragraph. Well, let me read the whole thing. Going back to my dialogue with the African Muslim leader, 
he informed me that Islam teaches that there is no intervening conscious existence after death. For the dead await the resurrection from the grave at the sound of the trumpet when God comes in judgment upon the world and they believe that the only person who deserves to judge the world is Jesus. Why? Because he was sinless, perfect. The dead simply rest from their labors as in, as in a sleep, not knowing the passage of time and only being awakened in Yom Al-Qiyamah. Shabana, do you know that? Yom Al-Qiyamah? Yom Al-Qiyamah. Day of the resurrection. Only then. And that's what it says. Every soul shall have a taste of death. And only on that day of judgment shall you be paid your recompense. And underline the word only. Only on the day of the judgment, day of resurrection. Not before, not after. Otherwise, how this would make sense? That when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven the second time, he is going to give his reward to the righteous, right? Well, if they're already in heaven, they already got their reward. They already got their reward. But he comes here to give them their reward by resurrecting them from the grave. So there we have more things in common about the subject of death than any other Christian group. Look at page 258. 258. Question 3. About the Sabbath. We are Seventh-day Adventists. We believe in the Sabbath. I shared with you yesterday about how they view the Sabbath day. Look at page 259. Question 4. What other advantage do Adventists have in reaching Muslims? Other besides these doctrinal things. First, the conservative lifestyle. The, more I, the older I get, the more I appreciate conservative lifestyle. Well, I don't know about you in Michigan here. Are, are you... Uh, more into being liberal, I don't know, moderate, conservative. I like, more and more, I like conservative values. Old-fashioned values, honesty, integrity, truth, respect. Respect for God's word. The truth is in Jesus. It's not a moving target. Today, postmodernism affecting the churches tells us what truth to you maybe is not truth to me. What's true today might not be truth tomorrow. But I mean, by conservative, you know, we're friendly, loving people. People ask me, but someone, how come you love people? How come you like to be with people? How come you like to befriend them? You're conservative. As if they think if you're conservative about the Bible, you must be a, a harsh person or a loving person. The two go together. I don't mean by conservative. What do I mean? Not rigid. Believing in the Word of God. And treating it as a priority. That's all. I'd rather believe in the Bible, other people's words. My words are nothing. Unless they're anchored in God's word. I have what I call the three W's. You know, I'm a teacher. You know, the three four P's and the four S's. And now you have the three W's. What's the first W? God's Word. Capital W. God's Word, capital W, must transform my Word, small w, in order for me to impact the world out there. I have no impact on the world unless God's big Word Transform my little world, my little value. And so let me give you one example how people can be deceived on the subject because I'm a theology professor. For example, some people say God's word is contained in the Bible. Now, you know, we're dealing with subtlety here. <clears throat> with camouflages. God's word is contained in the Bible. What's wrong? Most people accept this. But what do you think is wrong with it? 
Exact. You, you really prepared, aren't you? This is excellent. Because you see, what they mean by God's word is contained in the Bible, meaning the Bible is a container. And if you look hard enough, you'll find in it God's word. But there are other things that are not true. They are radishes and they toss salad. But there are other things too. Other things. And what you said is true. What did you say, sir? Can you say it loud? But what? The Bible. The whole Bible is the word of God. The whole thing. Well, how do you know that? How can you be sure? Because the Bible tells you so. All scriptures, not just part of them, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Then second, maintaining high moral standards. Do you believe in high moral standards? We should be the best. We should be the champions for God. The shining stars. Don't ask the question, what's the least I can get by with? But what, what's the best I can do for God? Didn't Jesus do his best for us? Tell me now, did he do his best? What more could he have done than give his life on the cross? High moral standard. When other people are saying, it doesn't matter if I live with somebody, as long as we love each other, well, it's against God's counsel, that's all. What's wrong? I'm dealing with Christian counselors sometimes. And they tell young people it's okay to live with somebody before you get married. Why? Because all things work together for good and this really prepares you to have a good marriage. Like Donald Trump says, no, that's a disaster. <laughs> doesn't work that way. High moral standards. Also, in the, can I say this at the scam meeting? Even in our dress standards. Why? Because you don't want to show off yourself. You want to reveal Jesus, right? The attention should not be pointed to you, but to Jesus. And I'm not talking about just women, by the way. Men are vain too. And they dress in such a way sometimes to attract attention to them. My friends, Christ must be revealed in our lives and not self. There is too much of self revealed today. We need more of the Savior. Are you, do you resonate with me? I'm just talking about giving glory to God. If a, if a man or woman dressed in such a way to be so distracting, I'm only looking at them. We need to look at Jesus. He said, if I be lifted up, if I'm glorified, I will draw all men unto me. If they glorify you and me, we don't want people drawn to us. We want to be drawn to Jesus who reveals himself through our hearts and through our outward appearance. You know, the people who hide behind the statement, don't look at me, look at my heart. Well, of course the heart is the most important. But don't you really think that the outward appearance has something to do with the heart? I think it has something to do with the heart. Okay, look at page 260. Number four, they view us as the people of the book. And the Quran says, if you study the truth about God, you still have questions, ask the Christians who really hold the book in high esteem. Seven the ethnics are known to be the people of the book. In these last days, Satan trying to undermine our confidence in God's word, the Bible. I know that. I used to edit the Sabbath school lesson quarterly at the John Conference. I was under a lot of pressure by Adventist scholars and others to veer away from focusing on the book. I was editing the lesson on inspiration revelation. I was approached by some Adventist scholars who said they got to distinguish a new lesson here to be to be used by the whole world, Adventist world, the difference between something revealed and something inspired. Have you ever heard about that? To distinguish, to look at the Bible and to chop it up. 
in different parts and say this part is inspired and this part is revealed. Have you ever heard about that? I said, I will not make a distinction between the two. Because they were thinking that what we determine is revealed has more authority than things that are considered inspired. Don't make this distinction. Then you end up taking the Bible in a certain way to support your personal opinion. I said, Lord, help me to put a statement in the Sabbath school lesson to answer that question. And without the internet, God led me to a statement by Alan White, which said, if anybody comes to tell you revelation is more important than inspiration in the Bible, don't let them do that. Because everything in the Bible is inspired and revealed and has the same authority. So I put that in the Sabbath school quotable. We got to have a high view of Scripture. So my first priority as a theology professor at Southern Adventist University, that's my first priority, is to build up our young people's faith in the Scripture, in our distinctive message, in the spirit of prophecy, so they can witness with conviction and win souls. You cannot win souls unless you believe it with all your heart. Third, I mean, fifth, the balance emphasis on faith and works. Muslims are offended by Christians who say, by faith only, I just believe everything will be okay. I just believe once saved, always saved, and I can be away from that. No, Seventh-day Adventists have this balance. And what's the balance? Faith, genuine faith, is so powerful. It propels you to live for Jesus. We're not saved by works. But the Apostle Paul says, we are God's new creation for good works, not by, for good works. Good works play a part. What part? They have a show evidence that you have a living faith. Muslims appreciate this about Adventists. We focus on good works. Let your light so shine, Jesus said. So people can look at your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Apparently Jesus believed in good works. But notice what he said. Let your light so shine. Why? Because you and I were darkness. But in Christ, the light of the world, we become light. When we become light in Christ, then good works shine through us. Not because we're trying to conjure this up and force it out of us, it's a natural result of having a love relationship with Jesus. The two go together. That's why the French have this saying. Anybody here speaks French? Raise your hand if you speak French. Thank you, brother, for speaking French. It's a good language. It will not be language of heaven. Spanish will be. Not Spanish, but a heavenly language is more beautiful than any other language. You know what they say? La foi vraie. Genuine faith. Marche. What does the word marche mean? It's like marching, walking. Genuine faith walks. If there's genuine faith, there is an activity. And another meaning in the French, works. Genuine faith works. It works. It walks. It's active. It's genuine. Otherwise, like James said, it's dead. I'm talking about the, saying these things because this really, really helps us in reaching out to these people. Page 261. Question 6. Name some helpful suggestions in effectively reaching out to Muslim friends, neighbors, and colleagues. And there you have it. I'm going to read to you, but say first. Nurture a genuine friendship. Now, I think, I think, Shabana, even though you have Pakistani background, isn't that true, by the way? Muslims respond to friendship and hospitality. So don't push a Bible study on them first. Make friends with them. That goes with Christ's method. He mingled with people as one who desired their good. And I give all the way to page 262 uh, different uh, approaches to make friends with them and to listen to the Bible, what part of the Bible 
John, because it talks about the Word of God, because they believe in the Word of God. And then Matthew to establish the genealogy of Jesus that takes him all the way back to Abraham, the father Abraham. Jesus comes from Abraham like they came from Abraham. Uh, all of that. And then I want to, right now, go a little bit to page 101. 101. I'm moving back and forth to give you uh, some gems in the book to entice you to what the appetite to read it when you go home. 101. Simple. I'm going to do this in just a few minutes. There are five articles of faith for them and six duties. Not 28. Very simple. And now you notice what it is. Page 101. The first article of faith is believe in God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Ishmael. Many, many American Christians think Allah is a, is a heathen God. It's not. I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home. My parents were Christians before that, Greek Orthodox. And we only knew Arabic and the Arabic Bible. And the only word in the Arabic Bible for God is Allah. It's very similar to the Hebrew Elohim. It's a Semitic word. It's very similar to the Aramaic word Allah. And Jesus spoke Aramaic and he used the word Allah. Should we accuse Jesus of uttering a false name for God? It's a Semitic word. I cannot say a Spanish-speaking Adventist, by the way, use the name Dios. It's wrong. No, that's the word for God in Spanish. The word for God in Arabic is Allah. Now, of course, Muslims focus on his power. Christians focus on his love. Jews focus on his justice. But we talk about the same identity of God, the creator of heaven and earth, and the father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, you say, well, what's the difference? There's a difference. I'm the same person. My students view me differently. I'm still the same person. Some people think I'm too hard on the test. Some people think I'm easy. Some people think I'm somewhere between. I'm still the same person. And even the adventures, some people think of God as more arbitrary or more merciful. People have different views on God. His identity remains the same. And, and read that answer, you'll be convinced. I mean, nobody can accuse me when I pray. You know, sometimes in times of stress, you resort back to your maternal language. My wife grew up in a Spanish culture. I find her praying in Spanish sometimes. And using the word Dios. When I pray in Arabic, my maternal tongue I use the God, name for God in Arabic. That's not a heathen God. People might use his name and use him to present their own ideas. And the terrorists do that. But also Christians do that. In Lebanon, when there was a civil war between Christians and Muslims and others for 18 years, Christians themselves used the name of God to attack Muslims. We're not supposed to do that. And Hindus in India, though it's a peaceful religion, yet we have militant Hindus who attack Muslim mosques and say God is on our side. All these religious fanatics appeal to God to be on their side. ISIS members pray to Allah and say He is on their side and He's causing the killing of all these innocent people. That's the wrong view of God. We reject that totally. Then please look at page 104, the second article of faith. The angels. They believe in angels and we believe in angels. And the names of them like Gabriel and Michael and Shaitan who is Satan who fell because he was too proud. Look at page 106. Third article of faith. Belief in the Quran and the holy books as Shabana mentioned. The Quran teaches about Torah and Injil, Old Testament and the Gospel. So they already believe in that. Then the fourth article of faith on page 108. Look at that. Very important about their view of Jesus on the fourth, in the fourth article of faith. It's believing in the prophets. And I name in the textbook the six most important prophets in Islam. See if you find, you could identify them. The first one, Adam, is described as the chosen of God. 
Noah as the preacher of God, Abraham as the friend of God, Moses as the speaker of God. Look at number six, Muhammad as the messenger of God. But Jesus has a very unique title. How is Christ described as a prophet? The word of God. Isn't there something unique about it? That's the same word in Greek, logos, found in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And Muslim scholars who analyze this word admit they, this word has to do with divinity. It's the, unusual, it's the word of God. And so there's a very unique title about Jesus. The fifth article, predestination, an extreme view of predestination. Whatever happens to us is ordained by God. And then on page 110, I think I said the only five articles of faith, and there's six of them. The sixth article of faith is the day of judgment, Yom Al-Qiyamah. There will be a day of judgment when the righteous and wicked will be resurrected to be given their rewards. Either to go to paradise or to be consumed by fire. Now, go to page 113. I'm going to share with you the five religious duties. Simple. That's why the Islam is growing very fast around the world. Simple belief. Look at the duties. The first duty is shahada. means you give your testimony. That's the first one. They emphasize testifying for your faith. Is witnessing important to us as Adventists? Look at page 114. Salat means prayer, praying five times a day. And don't criticize them. Do Seventh-day Adventists pray five times a day? Do some Adventists even pray one time a day? Did you ever leave home to go to work without praying? Now look at, look at the third one, page 116. Sound, which means fasting for one month. But don't worry, they won't starve to death because they have like a vacation. During the day they rest. But after sundown, they eat at night. Now, I don't prefer to eat at night. But at least they manage okay. Fasting, to think about spiritual things, to think about sacrificing to help other people. Page 117, the fourth one is zakat, to give alms to the poor. Now, the important one I want to focus on is page 118. The fifth one is called Hajj, pilgrimage to Mecca. Every Muslim is encouraged to go to pilgrimage once in a lifetime. I didn't mean that's the one I want to focus on. There is the, I don't give it a number as a six, but I don't think it is a duty. But look at page 120, the end of that page. And that will be the last thing I'll share with you. The last thing. Jihad. About a dozen of you asked me about jihad, jihadists. We associate that with something negative. It could be very negative. ISIS and Al-Qaeda, the most violent people in the world, the ones who kill innocent people, it is demonic, I said. Claim there are jihadists fighting God's holy war. And God is going to reward them by taking them to heaven. Let me say, be very plain with you. Everybody, I don't care, Muslim, Christian, Hindus, doesn't matter. Everybody who kills innocent people and relishes shedding blood like that will never be in paradise. They'll burn in hell. And all these ISIS members who kill all these innocent people will be in hell. And I'm pronouncing judgment upon them. It's obvious, it's clear, there is no doubt about it. Would you like to live with murderers in heaven? Come on. And the Bible says no murders will be in heaven. So I made a very strong statement to let, I'm going on record that they're, they're not going to paradise ever. They're not going to enjoy any versions ever in heaven. They're going to be in hell. Because people who do these wanton acts are not Christ-like at all. That we need to pray for them. Many of them are getting converted, thank God. God is showing dreams to look differently at the world, to realize there is something to Jesus' salvation and truth and righteousness and love. So pray for them. You say, well, that's someone you just judge them. Well, I only talked about the 
And the ones who already blew up themselves, that's it. There is no second chance for them. But the ones who are living, we need to pray for them. God will convert them. Now, saying what I said, you look at page 121, there are all kinds of jihad. There are four kinds of jihad. In fact, the word jihad in Arabic simply means struggle or controversy. We refer to Mrs. White's book, The Great Controversy, as the, the great jihad. Controversy means jihad. And the first kind of jihad, please, don't think that I'm trying to soft water down this idea of jihad. No, I'm telling you the truth. The fourth kind is the worst kind that ISIS practices, but there are three other kinds. The first one is a great controversy in the human mind between good and evil. That's a spiritual jihad. To decide for good or evil in your mind. Second kind of jihad, according to Muslims, if your family is attacked, wife, children attacked, you're supposed to defend your family. That's a family jihad. And all Americans, if your house is attacked, you want to defend your family. The third kind of jihad, if your country is attacked. For example, if China invades the United States on the, from the West Coast, America are going to defend their country. Not only the army, our armed forces, but militia will rise up to defend America. That will be a jihad for your country. But the terrorists take the last kind of jihad, which is not in the Quran, by the way. It's your own tradition. They twist things and say, jihad is killing anybody, anything that moves to accomplish your goal. The extremist way of the end justify the means. That's the kind of jihad. If you blow up yourself, you go back to paradise. That's not mentioned anywhere in the Quran. And 99.99% of Muslims do not believe in this form of jihad. They believe in the other three. They believe in jihad. Defend your family. Defend your country. Plus, may God win the war in your head between good and evil. I hope you learned something. Did you learn something? If you learned something, raise your hand. And this is just scratching the surface. As I said, the textbook has 250 questions that puzzle people. And we just touched on a few of them. Now I'm going to have prayer after the prayer is finished. They're going to cut off the recording. And then I'll chat with you a little bit. Let's bow our heads. Loving Father in heaven, I thank you with all my heart that you are there in the midst of our lives to help us win in this jihad. That our minds would choose what's good, reject what's evil. You help us in this jihad that we can win with you in the great controversy between good and evil. Dear Lord, may you always speak the truth in love with tears in our voice. And dear Lord, would you please grant us to be Christ-like, that he may be revealed in our lives. Away with self and up with the Savior. There is too much of self in the world. We want Christ to be revealed. So Lord, may you increase in every life. May we decrease. To your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.